Welcome to One of Two Hundred, the Independent Media and Politics Podcast. I'm joined today by Branko. Hey, how's it going? Hey, Kyoto, how's it going? Uh, and Mark, how are you doing, Mark? Kyoto Koto, um, I'm doing as well as can be expected. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's that's you know going to be the answer um, of a lot of people. Um, or I'm doing incredibly badly. Yeah, it's there's only really one thing to talk about th- this weekend, and realistically, uh, it's something we're going to be talking about for years. And that's the impact of the heavy rainfall uh, into a cyclone that the North Island has suffered from over the last couple of weeks. I think, you know, it's very heavily focused. The the reporting and and the narrative is very heavily focused on the Hawke's Bay, and rightly so at this point, Um, and and on uh, Gisborne, Tairawhiti and and the like, where the scale of the devastation is just unlike anything else. But at the same time, you have still got people who who have been unhomed in Auckland. Um, Northland uh, in particular has barely been in the news at all um, because Auckland quickly took that spot from them following the heavy rain uh, a couple of weeks back. Uh, You've got, you know, out out on the west uh, coast in Auckland and Murawai and and Piha, they're unvisitable. Things are just falling over. Still people trying to find homes, um, dealing with flood damage, um, still places in Auckland without power. Uh, And then the cyclone can rip through everywhere. Uh, And the scale of the disaster in in the Hawke's Bay, I think we still don't know um, how bad that is. That's the the extent to to which this this disaster is unmanageable. I've said something like 100,000 people are still, 100,000 homes are still without power. And there are 4,500 people who are uncontactable. Uh, so obviously wishing the best for, for that. But, you know, it's been a week and it's so inaccessible down there. Um, I, I'm up in Auckland, obviously, but it's so inaccessible in that region that we still don't have numbers on just how many people this is directly affecting. That if, you've probably seen the uh, footage and the photos and the interviews with people who have seen their homes washed away. Silt kind of almost up to the roofs of some communities, uh, entire townships wiped out, and and then roads, bridges washed away as well, making it even more difficult to get uh, a, a disaster response on the ground. The latest horrific news is that they're setting up temporary morgues um, in both Napier and Hastings. Currently, it's eight deaths um, that have been confirmed, but that speaks to a a much higher expectation uh, from the people on the ground that there is going to be a lot more that they have to they have to deal with down there. Yeah, wall to wall. There's been a lot of really fantastic uh, coverage from the media, really putting the uh, people and the victims of of this disaster um, front and center been a a reasonably good response uh, from most politicians. But I wanted to start our discussion about it by handing over to you, Mark, uh, to talk about how how this eventuated, you know, with climate change as a as a concept, um, as a as a risk, has been something we've been aware of for, for decades and decades now. People have kind of known that some of this was was going to happen at some point. Well what what do you think has cause this scale um, to hit us so uh, apparently unawares and 
for the response, you know, it, it has been slower than you would have hoped. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, it's just quite hard to, to really figure out where to, where to start there. I think, um, I think one thing that's standing out to me at the moment, um, just to, to answer your question quite specifically, is there's, there's been a real reaction from people who maybe haven't been, um, who haven't been directly affected by the cyclone as much as perhaps from the floods. And they're just worn out and frustrated with just the kind of constant levels of reactivity and having um you're having um watching this discourse that that erupts when these events begin of like oh as you know should we close schools should we um actually care about cyclone warnings um are cyclone warnings woke um and people are just like they're just they're really really frustrated and sick of it and i have seen a bit of a response to be like very much coming from a kind of carbon accounting point of view that this is about climate change uh, we have to blame and hold the people accountable who um, have been delaying, denying, slowing down progress, kind of gumming up the works of, of government to prevent this climate action. And I think that that's a fair point. And I think that um, that's important to, to raise. There's no question of like, now's not the right time. Um, but I do feel that that is perhaps not the best way to understand the situation that's happened because I think climate change is going to affect every natural disaster. It's going to be implicated in every weather event. It's it's there. It's a it's background noise. But from a carbon accounting point of view, it's statistical, right? It's about modeling earth systems and looking at large changes over long periods of time. I think what's more relevant to really understand the the scope and the scale of, of this disaster is is really looking at more the interaction with like humans and the environment and like what how has development how has kind of land management um, but in particular areas of the country having particular problems uh, it's really not a, this this idea of like a flood being a natural disaster is is an interesting one because floods of of any kind of disaster are actually driven by human development um, and you can really see that emphasized when you look at some of the aerial photographs of of places that have been inundated and you can see how the the pattern of roads the pattern of um basically impermeable asphalt and concrete creating these surfaces for water to flow along and i think that that point is being missed by a lot of it it's not just that climate change is, is generating more rain because the atmosphere um a warmer atmosphere holds more moisture um, we're seeing rainfall records being broken but it's the fact that our infrastructure, our, the, the, our urban development and also our rural development is actually set up to reinforce that, to exaggerate it, to feed back into making it worse. And so I think that's, that's what we're seeing. Um, and there's a number of different examples of that. Um, probably the most egregious or the, at least the worst um, is the forestry industry. And so there's there's a lot, um, I won't go into a whole lot of detail there, but I think there's just one one situation that's happening at the moment, which I think sum, sums it up really well of just like how how corporate fuckery and bullshit has just made everything worse. And it's unpredictable, but it's also like, it's basically mismanagement feeding into like future problems. And that's like where the logging slash has swept down hillsides flown along river valleys, smashed through bridges, bowled over farms, and it's washed out into the coastline. And all of this mess, all of this, um, like ironically, these logs are actually like compacted, stored carbon themselves. Um, it's fouled up all of the coastline 
such that the Navy can't actually get generators and heavy cranes and equipment off the ships to to these rural communities um, where all the bridges are taken out so the stuff can't go by road. But because there's so much logging slash um, smashing all around the coastlines, they can't get small boats into these bays. Um, so it's just like it is just like levels of feedback loops going on. Um, but again, like um, back to what you're saying, Kyle, the the thing is like it's a week a week on, right, or nearly a week on, and we still don't really have a good picture of what's happened. Um, there's still just a lot of kind of questions, um, and it's it's I don't know, it's just something. Um, it's something we haven't really experienced before in recent memory. Um, most most of our sort of our context for these disasters and situations is um, is like full internet connectivity and and seeing things happening in more kind of real time and like the camera footage from phones and, and everything like that. Um, but because all of the electrical grid has been taken out in a lot of areas, uh, we're really um, and the communications infrastructure is down. Massive slips have like washed out like huge parts of the um, of the substations and infrastructure that's actually getting power to these places, these small towns and um, and cities around the east coast. So we don't um, we don't really know a lot about the the situation. It's kind of like we've gone a few decades back, and um, it very very much feels like an old school kind of reporting frame where news comes out slowly in kind of time and it's processed in sort of more analog and, and manual ways and I think that that's um, that's just um, that's really confronting. Yeah I mean incredibly surreal scenes to see you know not just from New Zealand but but even here you know closer to, to home where where we are in Auckland um, you know it's the stuff in, in, in West Auckland and around Piha has been pretty crazy to, to, to see I mean I've, I've heard of people you know people's houses completely being demolished uh much like in other parts of the country you know i think uh in this part of the country we don't usually think of ourselves as a, a as a potential disaster zone um you know uh and i think this is kind of a, a bit of a wake-up call for a lot of people who thought you know maybe that, that we were insulated from a lot of this stuff and i mean you know on, on the on the topic of of reacting i mean i think that, that that's a really important thing to keep in mind i mean this we, we knew that this was going to happen, not just because of the fact that um, uh, obviously, you know, we, climate change and climate scientists have been warning about the fact that the way that the climate is changing, these kinds of events are going to happen more often. They're going to be more severe. So we, we knew from that level, but we also knew it because this stuff was, was hitting um, parts of the country for, for a while. I mean, you know, the, the um, uh, central North Island has been getting pretty disastrous flooding pretty consistently every single year um sort of pops in, pops up on the news and we go oh that's a shame and then we sort of just move on um but but you know these these you know these towns have been basically hit by this uh pretty consistently um and actually there was a report in in november last year a government report that, that identified like 12 different communities that basically the government said they're completely unprepared for the flooding not only because you know the infrastructure isn't there um but also because it's so low income that that just a, that there isn't the money there to you know to, to make sure that people are going to be safe and in, in case there is a disastrous weather event you know that was in november last year and, and the, the, clearly the government knew that this was a possibility but but this is this is the thing we're talking about we don't we're not proactive we're reactive um and i think that's unfortunately a large part of the it's a, it's a it's a it's a largely product of this kind of philosophy that that we take um which we it's it's what in any other context we call 
penny wise, pound foolish. We think that we're being responsible and prudent. That's that's certainly the way that Grant Robertson has has framed you know the government's bookkeeping over the past uh, six years. As, as after this flooding, he said, you know, well, you know, we've been very prudent about it. Well, is is it prudent if if all you're doing is is uh, kicking the can down the road and delaying actually having to deal with um, and 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 prepare and prevent a disaster like this because you don't want to appear like you're spending too much money? I don't, I don't think that is. Um, I think we really have to move away from this kind of thinking. I mean, we've been saying it on this podcast for years that this is a, a foolish way to go about um you know managing uh, uh the challenges that, that face the country but i think um if now is not a wake-up call um i don't know i don't know what will um because it's not good enough i think to just keep having disasters come up and then saying okay well now we're gonna we're gonna spend the money to to try and deal with this um you know after the fact after people have been you know left homeless and they've lost everything and, and, and in some cases lost their lives. Yeah, I think that raises an interesting question that I've been pondering because I, I think there's probably two, there's two, maybe not schools of thought, but there's definitely two ways to view the sort of austerity or kind of, we call it fiscal responsibility since that was the literal name of the act of parliament. That um, it's, it's like a regime. I think Bernard Hickey's probably one of the only journalists who actually talks about the stuff explicitly um, over time. Um, and it's it's been really fascinating to me to look at that sort of symbolism and just the thinking around around that because the timeframes between so Cyclone Bowler uh, hit the North Island in 1988, which was when all of the stuff was being designed. Um, the electricity sector was um, the sort of reforms there were nascent. The um, State-Owned Enterprises Act had gone through, but the the big reforms and the Fiscal Responsibility Act um, and all of the so the deregulation was in progress, but all the privatization was yet to hit. So in a way, Cyclone Bowler was like the event that um, that sort of ki- was it kicked off around the start of this um, this thing we might call neoliberalism. I realize that's controversial to some people. Um, Not on this podcast. A, it's a well. There's like there's different ways of looking at it. Um, but I think from if we just talk about fiscal responsibility as the the frame, because that's what the politicians call it. And so we basically have. It's almost like we've got these two cyclones that kind of cap this time period of um, of just negligence around infrastructure investment, um, where there's been bipartisan agreement between red and blue teams that we should have low taxes and we should have low government debt. Um, and that that feeds into this kind of, this idea that it's actually good and and morally virtuous to to to, um, to do that, um, that, um, that language that Bronco mentioned Grant Robertson using, you know, this it's it's seen as a moral thing. And and we 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 are seeing the consequences of that. And I, I wonder, um, it's just weird to me that the I mean, I always I'm always looking for something to destroy neoliberalism. Um, and it's probably not going to be this, but it, it really does seem like that time period is over because we just simply can't run the we can't run the country like this anymore. We can't well, um, we we can't we can't do it anymore. It, it has been amazing. I mean, you say that, and I completely agree with you. And and I would hope that yeah, that that this does foster some kind of sea change. But then you look at what the political response is, and you know, you got Chris Luxon out there talking about, well, we're still going to do, do tax cuts. You know, you got Grant Robinson saying, well, you know, uh, the books are in good shape, and we're going to have to borrow a little bit, and we're going to have to, uh, but it's going to be tight, and we're going to have to cut some things here, but we're going to make this work. It's it's you know it's it's still the that ethos is prevailing among it's, among people in, uh, in power. 
this idea has got to be tight. Like, oh, we have to tighten the belt so we can pay to save some people's lives, you know, so we can rebuild an entire community. It's actually sickening. Um, and Calvin Davis was standing up to talk about um, rebuilding road infrastructure. And he was using that, that same language. Oh, everything costs something. Um, yeah, no shit. Open the fucking wallet, you know? <laughs> You've got bloody Shane Reddy uh, begging Elon Musk to provide Starlink, uh, which, I mean, I know this is a, a separate thing from taxation, but why are we begging billionaires? You're a government. You're an MP. Yeah. You can, that was we, cr- we have, horrifically cringe that whole thing. That was thing. just silly first, as well. First of, all, first of all, tag the guy, number one. I mean, Jesus Christ. I did it, and he did it in the thread. Throw a tweet out there, and he's just going to see it randomly. Second, and once, once you've tagged him in the following tweet, he's not going to read a tweet that's just his name. So great, great work there, uh, uh, you know, even, even trying to like beg for, for, for help from him. But number two, I mean, we live in a wealthy country. There are, I think, 60 some billionaires in New Zealand. There's uh, hundreds of thousands of people worth a million dollars or more, uh, you know, according to the, the, the figures I've seen. Um, I know that some of that is housing value. But so, you know, take that figure down. You've still got thousands of people that are worth many, many millions of dollars. Um, and this government has completely ruled out any sort of, ta- you know, windfall taxes, wealth taxes, taxing uh, trusts uh, at, at a high rate, all this stuff. They've, they've ruled all that stuff out. Surely is not now the time, given, given the fact that MPs are literally on the Internet begging foreign billionaires for help. Then maybe we just say, hey, you know what? Given the fact that we have lots of people doing extremely well right here in this country. Let's just do uh, it faster. People like Peter Thiel, who is a citizen of this country because he gave uh, a, a tiny percentage of his of his wealth to the uh, Christchurch rebuild. Um, why don't we say, hey, you know what? You've done really great, uh, but it, but the country needs uh, help and you need to pay a fair share. So, you know what? We I know we ruled all that stuff up, but things have changed and we're going to we're going to tax you now. Uh, we 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 need uh, funds to to rebuild and give people the assistance while they're they're in trouble. And what was amazing is that while this was happening, and yes, I know a lot a lot of people got another way to say Reddy's doing great work in his community. Great, like fantastic. That doesn't mean he's above criticism for this like ludicrous tweet. When at the same time you had people in New Zealand going and buying Starlinks and shipping them down. You know, <laughs> like it was it was happening. We, we have access yeah. to that in New Zealand already. Um, one of the ones I saw was Bailey Mackey from uh, Pango, um, just ran 31 Starlinks down, like just got it done. Like this, it was a viable thing to do. Um, the problem in the New Zealand the context. The problem was that um, power grid was knocked out in places. Like, you know, that that is the issue. Like, if your substation is, is buried in 10 meters of silt and access crews can't get to it, because the bridge over the river has been wiped out, there's just no that's like not fixable by Elon Musk sending sending his fucking submarine or whatever. You know that that narrative is like is just broken. Uh, it's really funny to me though because it's a reflexive thing that you see on the right. Like we saw it with the COVID response um, in March 2020 as well. There were certain think tank people on Twitter screaming at the government for buying ventilators. You know, why aren't the hospitals stocked up? Why isn't the government buying? And it's like, you want this ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. You basically want to wait until people's respiratory systems are failing and collapsing and then have all this medical tech waiting for it. Why not just prevent infection and transmission? But it's just, you know, that thinking in systems, thinking of things being connected, thinking of like cause and effect, it's just, it's a real challenge for some people. The right wing, or even maybe like 
liberal centrist um, kind of standard response um, to to crises is to think, okay, which rich people are going to bail us out? Or, well, I can just be a prepper. Um, and I, I, I've got everything in my bunker, so it's fine. But neither of those apply like to the citizenship at large. Um, you know, you mentioned it earlier, Mark, but a lot of these communities just don't have the personal resource to write this out. You can't go and like, you, you can't make a um, what, a climate resiliency bag or, or like, you know, box if you don't have enough money to pay for electricity every day of the week as it is. It is a societal wide problem. It's not something that like we can hope that each one of these individuals is going to pull through. Like it needs a centralized kind of population wide response. Like it's just, we, we can't keep dealing with it on a, oh, something bad happened. Oh, have you tried working on resiliency? We'll send, we'll send all these people to a resiliency workshop. Um, that'll get them through this. Well, you know, thankfully the uh, financial sector is is willing to to come through in a time of need for Kiwis and, um, you know, uh, do things like offer <laughs> interest-free loans for 45 to 90 days uh, and, you know, uh, you know, so, uh, waive uh, fees for uh, a brief period too. That's Isn't this awesome. like less than a week after ASB did that fucking... Sympathy post. Oh, sympathy, yeah. Some people are New Zealanders, but we're earning record profits. Oh, that was the weird... Guys. Oh, public but, uh, relations. Going, well. This is not a good time to put out our quarterly profits. And hey, and hey, you know, really, let's pay tribute to the Reserve Bank, which, uh, you know, watching people lose uh, everything they've ever had in their lives uh, in the blink of an eye um, and completely uncertain about what the hell they're going to do with their lives and, and, and about what exactly the future holds. They said, you know what, we see this suffering, we see this anxiety. And we're only going to raise uh, interest rates by 50 basis points. Um, you know, we're going to do 75, but we're going to just do 50. Um, so, you know, people have to... That's us. That's us pulling our weight. People have to continue paying their outrageously gigantic mortgages even even more, but but not as much as they would have if um, if the country hadn't been completely, um, uh, you know, rocked by this hurricane, which, by the way, is set to, given the destruction that's done to, to, to you know, a lot of food sources uh it's going to make the yeah. inflation issue even worse um and and because again because the government has painted itself into this corner because our entire political system has painted itself into this ridiculous self-imposed fiscal corner um now the cost of living crisis which you know we might remember is the reason basically that that jacinda Ardern, that the, the prime minister basically ended up resigning um is is now um going to be have to be balanced out you know we have to balance dealing with that crisis with dealing with this other one because there's a real sense with one crisis at a time and even that crisis has to be dealt with at the cheap yeah there's a real sense that it is reactive from our institutions and our politicians at the moment as well. Like they're still trying to use that same framework to respond to this in a way that makes sense. It's very much a, um, this is what's programmed in as a response. So we're going to use that response and, um, but refer directly to the cyclone. I, I don't think that can last, you know, we've been agitating for a ministry of works or something similar for a, um, a long time. Something's going to, that reality is going to come up against the current response very soon, I imagine. Um, and it's going to be about how the government pivot to that. But yeah, we'll we'll see how that, how that goes. Yeah, I was curious to, I was curious if you were going to mention the um, Ministry of Works thing, because I, I feel like I have, um, I have a different take on it than a lot of people on the left seem to at the moment. I think I'm broadly supportive of I think the calls are coming from the right place. 
and I think uh, there's a lot of potential there, but I, I feel like we have to get real about like how what is what is possible in this current environment. Like we've just talked about this reactivity. We've talked about how our our frameworks at the high level of government are not adequate or um well suited to to any of what's happening. That we're basically incapable of responding to the to what people call the poly crisis or the perma crisis and like whatever whatever prefix you want to stick on front of, of crisis we've basically got it um we, we know that and and so i'm i'm wondering is how, how how do we actually deal with the the reality that our institutional frameworks are also incapable of of actually spinning up organizations at a large scale that work in the speed that's necessary and i've got a lot of ideas around ways that it can be approached but, I just yeah really not in the current think, framework um, I, I just do think that we, there's just we can't have a ministry of green works that uh, is going to function and oh no right and now, i absolutely agree um, it, it, the the types of people that would get into the high level roles in that organization are the exact opposite of the people that we want in there so we really need to i guess think through like the practical aspects of like how is this going to how yeah. how are we going to maintain this um how are we going to sort of develop this yeah i don't think like we can talk about creating a, a whole new institution to solve this crisis right like it is a, a piece of pressure um around those kind of narratives like we need a centralized response to some of this stuff we need uh, a design response to some of the stuff that we don't currently have the capacity for in government it seems there are uh, current ways for the government to respond to this um, using what is already there and obviously they should be using that and a lot of that is just uh, allowing spending but there are also problems with the delivery right like who who do you give that money to who's able to actually work through this to the extent that it is going to need there's so much different kinds of infrastructure that's destroyed yeah and I think that the people who are placed to do that work are the people who have caused the infrastructure problems um, and I'm going to name names I'm talking about Fletcher and Downer and Fulton Hogan um, all the big concrete people basically um, and and various subcontractors and um, contractors of contractors of contractors and chains of um, and of course all the oil companies who are providing the asphalt um, and this entire roading industry um, is implicated um, in terms of hogging all of the resources and building subpar, substandard roads. Uh, Waka Kotahi deeply implicated because a lot of the high-level managers in that organization have experience working at those contractors I just mentioned. Um, and there's very much a revolving door of the... And the, these people, uh, they're not the right people to be, um, to, to be in charge of large-scale response because they have proven over the last 20 years that they're incapable of managing and developing infrastructure um, with the future in mind. And they're, they're not incapable of making a profit, although um, to be fair to them, like a lot of them are actually losing money because they put in these low ball offers on these tenders um, that they can't actually afford. And then all sorts of kind of spiraling construction costs happen and it all blows out. And so you see the, the infrastructure projects in this country that work, are generally the big ones with so much money being spent that they can't fuck it up. Um, and it's just, it's a known thing that any large project is going to go over budget. That's well, well understood. There's lots of peer reviewed research at kind of explaining that um, the entire sort of situation, but on those projects, 
professionals, high-level people from um, other parts of the world who have that specific expertise in, say, tunneling. They come in and they do a great job, um, and we get stuff done to a high standard. But these projects are taking so long. We're taking ridiculous kind of um, shortcuts in places where that we probably shouldn't be, and then we're um, we're kind of overspending on these large projects because of all the financial controls and layers of of bureaucracy. So I think to kind of come back to your previous point, I think the centralized response is important, but we also need to consider um, a decentralized response as well. We need to consider how do we stand up new organisations in local regions who have very deep connections to the community. They also have the kind of geological, geotechnical understanding and climate understanding of those particular places. And, and how do we get those people running these projects, um, not these weird kind of organizations and these large concrete construction companies with these um, connections to these government agencies? I think people broadly agree that that model is over. But the problem is that all those people are still drawing salaries. They're still there. We're not going to get them out of those seats um, and so it's still, that, that's... still happening in that way, right? That that type of work is is still occurring. That framework is still there. That pipeline is still there. Um, you you lowball an offer, you know. Um, you you take shortcuts. This is like a a history of New Zealand infrastructure um, more than anything else. Yeah, I think it's fractal as well because I think you see it at the large scale with like a, a major motorway or something, and then you see it at the small scale of like like a curb a curbside cut with like a pedestrian crossing that gets completely fucked up by a local roading contractor you know like it's it's like it's we talk about poly crisis or perma crisis but there's also this kind of fractal dimension to it where on the small scale is fucked up all the way up to the large scale wow that's a horrifying image um but yeah you're talking about um you know the the different kind of business interests um, and, and some of the, the companies and, and corporate interests involved here being directly implicated. And you've also got agriculture down in the Hawke's Bay in particular. Um, and, you know, you mentioned forestry earlier. Really, all of these bad decisions were in the very much the wrong place at the same time. Yeah, that's right. And I think for, like forestry is a big one because I think the, the forestry story, um, again, tells you a lot about the big picture of um of the kind of context for these neoliberal reforms and this for this fiscal, um, this austerity and this this understanding of spending, that um, it's often um, we look at it from a domestic lens, but I think it's also really important to to realize a lot of the rhetoric and a lot of the big picture thinking around that time was about global trade and globalization, and the 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 forestry slash problems are a direct consequence of that. Now I was actually speaking to some people. Um, in BC and Canada about this because they were like, oh my God, it's happening there too. And I'm like, what, you guys are having the same problem? Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah. And um, why is that the problem? Because of this um, this weird outsourcing kind of exporting and then re-importing loop that, that is happening. And so you get these areas um, on the Pacific Rim, you've got British Columbia, you've got um, these these large plantation forests, um, into Ika Amawi, like that were actually planted by the New Zealand Forestry Service originally, aside from the East Coast ones, which are a separate story to do with Cyclone Bowler and land stabilization. There's like a deep irony to that. But basically, the reason why there's so much, um, it's often framed in the media as waste. Uh, a lot of the material that's left lying on these hillsides is usable wood. Uh, it's just not saleable 
in terms of the quality controls for this export market. But it's more economically efficient for these forestry companies to chop down this kind of juvenile sapwood trees, leave them lying on the hillside, even though that wood could be used for other purposes, uh, even though there's, there's all sorts of circular economy things or even like biochar to kind of rejuvenate like soils. There's lots of different things that could be done, but uh, that's not the business model. The business model is to take the best quality wood passes the quality controls to rip in as fast as possible, as um, efficiently as possible, ship those logs offshore, um, and then we re-import them back in terms of like like um, manufactured industrial products because we don't have that capacity in New Zealand because... Not anymore. Um, well, no, because New Zealand isn't a place that does that. That's not our role in the global economy, um, and it would be foolish and, and wasteful for us um, economically to do that. Um, regardless of the foolish, wasteful use of energy, use of um, of carbon embedded resources, um, it's it's a it it's about balance sheets driving it, and it's about prices being this kind of supreme sort of arbiter of like everything that happens. Prices must decide, um, and there's just we we're not allowed to look at energy. We're not allowed to measure the actual effort or material kind of embedded in a process, in an industrial process or an agricultural process. Um, and these people have been emphatically very, very aggressively lobbying for this over a long period of time. Um, it's time for it to stop. And I think these people need to be identified for what they are and what they've done. Um, and we just should not listen to them ever again. And I think that our generation, probably people who are, say, younger than age 50, age 40, people in their 20s and 30s, now they are going to be the next leaders. Um, we cannot carry this forward. So I think it's, we have to see it in terms of a generational shift. And I don't mean generations like Gen X, millennials, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Not like marketing generations, but in terms of generations of leadership and accountability and sort of political generations. Like we do see Hipkins and, and Ardern are, um, um, are, are they millennials? Are they sort of on the cusp? Um, Xennials. Um, <laughs> so, so that generation is coming to power in New Zealand, you know, um, and and I think that that is the shift that needs to take place. We need to look at economics in a totally new way, um, and I guess from a like a left perspective, we need to to have those frameworks available for politicians to actually kind of see they can pick up and, and kind of use. Um, I think what we're going to see a lot of um, dismissiveness around this forestry situation. There's going to be people saying New Zealand is not a wealthy country, you know. So we have to we have to tighten our belts. We have to think about it that way. But it's like, well, what, you know, why why is the forestry industry behaving like this? Mm -hmm. Because that is what investors expect, and that is what the global export system relies on. Um, and so, in order to plug the New Zealand economy like a kind of module into this larger system, we also need to to do that. You know, you might talk about the Washington consensus being the sort of overarching umbrella for that modularity. Um, it goes in lots of different directions, but the the point is like if we keep if we keep that up, then we're going to keep seeing these yeah. disasters happen, and we're not going to. It's going to be reactive. We're not actually going to have a. Um, we're not going to have a granular kind of local way of of responding because these larger global economic frameworks are going to just keep washing over us. If a delivery framework doesn't have proactivity built into it, then you know you can only ever be reactive, right? Like it's just oh, we should have moved all that slash. Uh, oh well, it, it doesn't. Why why should we do that? No, that's just a cost down the line. Like under this current model, that's just 
just someone will have to deal with it, but it's not us. Unfortunately, it's, you know, like thousands of people in the East Coast. Yeah. Um, but as you said, it doesn't, that doesn't register on a balance sheet, right? Like it's that whole um, socialization of the costs kind of discourse. Yeah. Um, and I, it's not, um, it's, it's no longer on the forestry property. Whose problem is it? You know, the army is going to be pulling those out or the Navy off the coast. Yeah. We're, we're very sorry that this happened, but um, we're not going to change our practices at all because because we have a responsibility to our shareholders, um, which is fine. That's the way that capitalism works. That's why regulation exists. And we have this, this discourse around regulation is like it introduces inefficient. It's, it's only inefficient in that very narrow sense, because it, it wouldn't it be more efficient to take that embodied carbon that's just left slashed on the More physically efficient. And turn it into soil, you know, turn it into like small wood products that um, like build furniture in a local school like there's all kinds of things that that could be done with it but they require a society that's actually capable of of managing and maintaining a circular economy that is not that's not the framework that we're hearing yeah. on this and this is what's gonna and this this stuff keeps happening right like we're, we're gonna see more of these outcomes during crises so long as there is not a change in the way that we do things on a very basic level. If your community can't respond to something or if it has outside forces acting on it beyond just the environmental ones, like no amount of money is is going to fix that. We've seen, you know, the, the government has um, made a call out to Australia this week asking for help with the disaster response. Um, the army and the navy are down there. Uh, police and firefighters are out. Uh, civil defense is out. From what I'm seeing, it already feels like it's not going to be enough. There's going to need to be more uh, on top of funding. Like, it's just going to need to be more people involved. Yeah, I think that's We haven't dealt with one. anything on this scale in a long time. Like, yeah, the, we, the last major disaster was Christchurch? Uh, probably on that scale, yeah. But the thing about the Christchurch situation was that it was very centralized. Yeah. So when that um, that unknown fault sort of emerged under the city, um, aside from like small Canterbury towns that did get really badly hit, um, it was mostly the central city in Christchurch. And so um, the airport was functional because of the quirk of geography of where, what the land that that sits on. And um, so there were, um, there were ways of responding to that really rapidly. Um, and it also meant that international relief teams could just fly straight into the yeah. city. Um, and so that made a huge difference in terms of that speed of, um, of turnaround. Um, what's happening at the moment is so distributed across such a large huge scale area. that you know there's just not enough people to even survey the extent of they the don't even know where like uh, uh, thousands of people are you know they just haven't been able yeah. to do it like i know a, a bunch of people down there um and even on the ground they only know what's in their immediate community you yeah. know they're like okay well i can go here to get a generator and charge my devices and gisborne um just yesterday they announced that both water treatment plants have failed they were struggling to get information out there's a whole range of misinformation um like not not intentional on the ground as well where people are relying on grapevines or you know word of mouth to to hear stuff of like talking about which bridges are knocked out right like oh you yeah. got the wrong one oh okay well we're not going that way yeah i think yeah, I, um it sounds like um, I'm not sure because I obviously don't have inside information that there was uh, there was a wake up call that happened with the the tragedy with that tourism boat 
and the volcanic eruption um, mm -hmm. was that that was 2018 wasn't it or 2019 um, it was in the first part of of this government's first term anyway and that that was a wake-up call in terms of lacking civil defense lacking emergency response and there were lots there was a, was there a royal commission into that there was a um, um, it might have been the Royal Commission, or maybe it was a coroner's report, actually, I'm thinking about. It identified a whole bunch of issues with that emergency response in terms of the centralization versus decentralization not being well solved, a lack of um, responsibility in terms of who is actually the person to, to do things, all sorts of problems that were just indicative, really, of just a, a kind of hollowed out, kind of decayed sort of um, organizational sort of structure and frameworks for communicating between um, central and, and regional authorities. Um, and so it's like, yes, this was a wake-up call. We need to fix this. Yeah. So working groups and people got onto it, but nothing happened. Yeah. Um, and I, you, people in Napier have been really frustrated, I think, because of the, um, I think probably for people in, in Northland and around the um, Auckland, Tamaki region, uh, it's a sense of like continuation because it's been going for a few weeks now. It's just been one of those summers, you know, and, and um, I know people on the Coromandel have been feeling it since around October, right? Um, that road that is now non-existent, um, Highway 56, has been taken out about six times in the last six or seven months. Um, but now it's like a 50 metre slip. It's not coming back. That road is is gone either forever or for at least two years. Um, you know, it's just we have to be realistic about, about these things. Like it needs to be re-engineered. Um, and so that's, but then they've been copying it, you know, and so this, this latest thing was just like more resilience, whereas these, these massive mega floods, they, they've been um, people who um, have um, kind of expected floods, but not on the scale of that, they weren't prepared for that, and just the level of um, disaster communications and emergency support uh, and coordination between um, different agencies, uh, people are have been saying it's a bit, it's a bit lacking. Um, and it's probably early days. And I think we are going to see things improve because there's an urgency there, right? Yeah. Um, they have to improve or like, yeah, that's right. Pe more people will die. Yeah. Okay. And, and that, that is a, a really powerful motivation. Like when things are actually in not, not a crisis, that word is just fucked now, but um, an emergency situation where rapid effective response is, um, is just unquestionable there's no alternative um you can't you can't fuck around and find out like you're you're in the finding out part um and so i think that that is hopefully going to change some of the behavior in a lot of these agencies and corporates uh because they you know they will be inundated and they will just fall apart if they aren't responding and acting with urgency in everything they do um, but i think for me i've been reflecting on this lack of urgency like as a whole like in this whole country's kind of attitude towards infrastructure um, and I think that's a big part of why things are, are broken. It's not just the austerity. It's not just the, the fiscal responsibility or the obsession with, with profit and balance sheets and prices being like, you know, markets being the only way that decisions should be made, um, almost like morally. Um, it's, it's also this, um, this she'll be right kind of attitude yeah. of like, we'll just, it's a one in a hundred year event, right? So we'll just- um, Hey, we we'll, just had two of those over to, two weekends. Yeah, <laughs> we don't have to build and design. We don't have to design and build and deploy infrastructure with urgency because, you know, we can we can just we can just cruise along. We yeah. can just ha have, have schedule more meetings in our calendar and, and write another report um, and send some more emails. Um, and that, 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 that time is, is 
for people in that particular industry is over. Urgency is, is going to be the driving factor in, in infrastructure decisions from here. And I really hope it has a, an ideological shift alongside it because it, it's just been lacking. I, I, I think that the Labour government should be using this crisis as an opportunity to to bring a tax. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, people are going to say you're playing politics with it, or it doesn't fucking matter. Like, these companies that have been doing this shit and price gouging and taking advantage um, of the way that, or, or even just ignoring it regulation altogether, we have to, we just have to hit them where it hurts. Like, no, okay, you're paying up now. We need this money for a response. It's time that big corporates pay something back to, to this community instead of taking all that money offshore. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you you really see after a crisis, there's like this kind of this moral dimension to um, to economics when um, people like like you. That's a small scale example of like like Uber's surge pricing. Like people people hate that, um, whether or not it's it's correct in terms of supply and demand. You know that that there's technical arguments around that. There's a lot of bullshit around it as well. But um, people really deeply loathe that they get very emotionally upset about it because there's something it breaks some kind of social norms in a very deep way the humans just do not like price gouging they do not like people exploiting disasters there's like a sort of it's a very it's very like socially sanctioned and so i think we will definitely see uh, we'll definitely see a lot of that there'll be really really strong reactions against corporates that do try to price gouge Uh, the supermarket chains will come under a lot of pressure Good. Um, and and a, a government should be using that. They should not be sitting back. They should not be saying, they should not be taking that same view of, oh, we'll we'll see how it goes. Um, they need they're gonna need money. If 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 the decision is we have to tighten our belts, uh, okay, well, like it sounds like you need some more food. Go go out and get it. Like there's a there's a very strong case. Just call it a crisis or an emergency tax take. Like, do it yeah. as a one-off. That's what we've been asking for with the windfall tax in the first place, right? It's not just tax. They can also um, borrow money. Oh, I mean, absolutely. They can just, like, spend. Yeah, like, it's just that what we need to, what we need to change, the fundamental thing is this idea of, like, financial um, management and fiscal responsibility. It's backwards. It's cart before horse. We need to decide what it is that we're going to do how much is that going to cost? How can we do it in the most effective and efficient way possible? And then go get the money to do it. We, we can't start from this perspective of the money. It's going to cost a lot or we, you know, we don't have the money for it. That's fucked. That's like accountancy principles, financial management principles. They exist to enable humans to do things. If we use them as a sort of end in itself, uh, we, we're just fundamentally breaking like a sort of like just just not it would be, like physical way laws, to view right? the world like yeah exactly and it's like these are human imposed constraints and like i'm not arguing against accountancy principles i think there's a lot of you know there's a lot of good to to sound and and well thought out decision making and tracking things you know and logistics is a, is a whole kind of field in and of itself um, i'm definitely not arguing against governments spending wisely and you know being like financially responsible it's just that we can't see those principles as ends in themselves. We need to see them as enabling us to achieve results. And those results are about keeping people warm, healthy, well-fed, able to actually have like fulfilling lives, people to 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 you know, have a meaningful existing in a society. Like that's the stuff that we need to to come back to. 
And if, if anyone can get that across and communicate that in a populist way, I mean, obviously I'm not the person to do that. I can like kind of diagnose the, the situation, but I don't have the magic political recipe for making that work because, you know, that's one of the central the central problems of our time is kind of um, is how to deal with the consequences of this rampaging sort of capitalist order. Um, yeah. And we have an opportunity to really, really walk some of that back in quite an extreme way because it's just not working anymore. People are dying. People are becoming climate refugees. Um, people, This is people down the road from us, right? This is us potentially. Like I've walked through floodwaters to work on numerous occasions in the last year. Like that's, you know, it, it is touching everybody in, in the country. So we, we can all relate to what's happening. I think that's a good place to to leave it. Yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. Um, do what you can to help, I, I guess. Uh, donate if you can. Um, share this around. Uh, if you think there's been useful stuff here, if you think um, we've framed it up well, get it in front of people. Uh, I think we have. But otherwise, yeah, take care out there. Um, if you're uh, ring, ringing in um, from, from somewhere affected by these, uh, yeah, take the utmost care and, and look after yourselves and your family. That's been another week. Uh, we'll catch you next time. Relentless routines, the dying embers of your dreams. Is the lie aspirational? Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines, the dying embers of your dreams. Is the lie. Keeping your glass up full You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism